Okay, this Shabbos we have the privilege of reading Parshas Vayetze, continuing our wonderful story. you got to love Sefer Bracious, where the storyline continues to unfold and the suspense that builds from week to week, and so on and so forth. So last week, we had, of course, the interaction between... Um, we spoke about last week a little bit the, the concept of deception and Sefer Bracious. How it seems the book seems to be riddled with lies, deception, untruths, and particularly from the people that we would expect the most from. People who are characterized and identified by the attribute of honesty. Titan Emesli Yaakov. Yaakov is defined as honesty, and what does he do? He disguises himself, lies to his own father, steals the birthright, uh, and so on. So now Yaakov is on the run. That's how we begin this week's parsha. Yaakov is running for his life. So while he's running for his life, the parsha begins. Yaakov, you know the old, the old, just shows you how Jewish humor has evolved. Thank God for the better. But the old Jewish joke about how do you know Yaakov, it's different versions. How do you know Yaakov wore a black hat? How do you know Yaakov wore a yarmulke? <laughs> but it says, Vayetze Yaakov mi Beersheva. Yaakov left Beersheva. Would he go out without a yarmulke? Would he go out without a hat? So it's Baruch Hashem, Jewish humor has evolved. Uh, from there. But anyway, Yaakov leaves, his impact is felt. Rashi tells us the famous comment, when a righteous person leaves the city, their absence, the void that's created by their absence is uh, perceived and felt. And he encounters the place. Very interesting. We, we studied this last year, so I don't want to revisit it. You could listen to last year's, maybe online, if you could find it. I don't know if it's there. But um, this notion of I mentioned that there's a Medrash, there's a Zohar, that gives us a number of running synonyms for prayer. We have a lot of different words that describe prayer. You have uh, the root, root verbs, whether it's lehit uh, palel, you have chanun, you have rina, bitzur, you have all kinds of uh, verbs that describe prayer. And of course there's no such thing as a synonym. There's always at least a nuanced difference between these terms. There's a whole book, Rav Shimshon David Pincus, uh, who passed away a few years ago, tragically, um, wrote a book called Sha'aram Bitfila, Gateways of Prayer. And he dedicates a chapter of the book. Each chapter is elucidating a different form of the verb to tell us we don't have one generic prayer. The prayer at the bedside of uh, Scotchless's get a mazel tov, they had twin grandsons on Sunday. So the prayer at that bedside of thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for a healthy delivery and two beautiful baby boys is very different than the prayer in the other end of the hospital of somebody who's sitting at the bedside of someone who's terminally ill and at the end of their life. So to just use that word prayer, we do a disservice, as if we describe it all as one generic prayer. There's not one generic prayer. There's the prayer of happiness, the prayer of joy and jubilation, there's the prayer of despair, there's the prayer of hopelessness, there's the prayer of of tragedy, there's the prayer of success and there's the prayer of failure. There's the prayer of optimism and there's the prayer of pessimism. There's all different forms of prayer. There's a prayer of of hands off from God, whatever you say is good. And there's the prayer, we have a precedent of a prayer where we nudge God. There's the prayer of, of like my kids do to me all the time, relentlessly beating you up until you you are weakened and so vulnerable that you, you just can't help but give in. We embrace that as a form of prayer. So this wonderful book, Sharon Batfila, I don't think it's been translated yet, um, gives these descriptions. One of the verbs that's used for prayer is this verb, Vayifka Bamakom. Yaakov Avinu encounters the place. So what kind of a form, what kind of a prayer is Pega, Vayifka, he encounters. Like happenstance, like chance, like to come across this place. That's one of the forms. Again, I don't want to spend time on this. I'm running out of time already. And Bamakom, we find that place used often. What Makom is this? Whenever we find the term Makom, where is this? 
So Makom is Har HaMoriah, it's the Temple Mount, that's where Yaakov has this dream, that's where the world began from, and Avram takes Yitzchak to slaughter him, Yaakov has the dream, all throughout our history we've come back to Yerushalayim, the heart of Yerushalayim is Har Habayis, is the Temple Mount, is Har HaMoriah. But Makom though, is also a description for, for God, it's one of God's names. So Yaakov encounters God, and he falls asleep. But it's a very strange name for God, Makom. Why do we describe God as a place? Rav Shimshon Rafalhersh has a very beautiful interpretation. He says, all this by way, by way of introduction, we haven't started yet. Just trying to give a context to where we are going to start today. But Rav Hirsch says, Makom is the way we relate to God when we feel distanced from Him. There are times in our lives where God's uh, presence feels so strong. You can feel God's presence so strongly, so intensely, where you have no doubts, where everything makes sense, where there's clarity, where there's illumination as to God's master plan. There are those moments where it all comes together. You feel God, you see God, you have absolutely no doubt in your life that God is the orchestrator of your destiny and fate. And then there are moments that are the opposite, where God feels so distant, where you're filled with such doubt, uncertainty, where you, you, you wish and you hope that he'll come close, but he feels so distant so far. In those moments, God is described, says Rafresh, as Makom. It says, when Avram's taking Yitzchak to the Akedah, we just read a few weeks ago, what does it say? Vayar ha-makom me-rachok. He saw God me-rachok from a distance. Avram was engaged in a struggle. There's a tension. He's fulfilling God's word, but he can't imagine how God could ask him to do this. And so at that moment, while Avram is prepared to submit his will to that of God, Avram is putting one foot in front of the other to ultimately arrive at Haram Moriah to perform the Akkad, the binding of Isaac. But he sees God, God feels so far away. And similarly, what do we say when we want to comfort a mourner? We use the term Hamakom. You'll find in, in Tishabav, in Eicha, in Kinos, the term Hamakom. So why Hamakom? Here Yaakov is now cloaked in darkness. He's on, Yaakov is Nebuch, this little yeshiva bachar. Yaakov is this little yeshiva bachar. He's sitting in yeshiva, learning Torah, minding his own business, could do no wrong, the goody two-shoes, growing up, getting perfect grades, always everything's perfect, getting nachas to his parents. Next thing you know, this little genius... Is, is, who, who's never left the study hall and has always been under the watchful eye of his mother who's making him soup and making sure he's wearing a warm sweater and taking good care of him. Yaakov's on the run. He's all by himself. He's no one to take care of him. And he's not in the comfortable safety security net of the study hall. Now he's on the run. So it's Makom. He feels it's the cloak of darkness. That's why Yaakov, by the way, whose life is often characterized now by this darkness, once he has this episode with Esav and he's on the run, here on in, Yaakov, Bikesh Yaakov, Leshev Beshava, he wants to just sit with peace and serenity, and God says, no way. And his life now becomes riddled by the sense of darkness. Which prayer does Yaakov introduce? The prayer of Mariv. Because Mariv is the prayer of the Jew in the cloak of dark, when God's presence is hidden. See, Avram, Avram gives a shacharis. In the morning, the sun comes up, it's bright, it's brisk, beautiful day, you feel clarity, you can see everything, it's a sense of hope and optimism, it's a new day, a new opportunity, a new beginning, that's Avram's life. Yitzchak's life is Mincha, we don't have time for that, and Yaakov's life is Marav. The sun is set, it's dark, it's cold, it's uncertainty, you can't see, it's unclear, and yet Yaakov introduces this prayer. So all of this, just the opening Pasuk, Tupsukim of the Parsha. I don't want to really get into this, but Yaakov falls asleep and he has a dream. 
By the way, again, for the Rambam, for Maimonides, this is very important, for the Rambam, in his Mor Nevuchim, none of these things actually happened. These were Nevuah. There were no three angels that came to Avraham, and Bilaam's donkey didn't talk, and Yaakov doesn't have a dream about a ladder and angels going up and down. The Rambam says all of these things are prophecies. They saw them through prophecy. Because for the Rambam, the Torah has to be absolutely consistent with our reality. And if in our reality a donkey doesn't talk and angels don't take the guise of men and dreams and rocks forming one, for the Rambam, all of this is prophecy. The Rambam was highly criticized. There were medieval commentaries, contemporaries, later contemporaries of his, who saw him as a heretic. If you remember, the Rambam's books were burnt, partially because of approaches like this, the idea that to suggest that these things didn't actually occur, but they were mere prophecies. In fact, the Rambam says, when we'll read shortly, Yaakov is, is uh, the reunion with Esau, he's leading his family, he goes back to collect the small jugs, there's a connection between that and Hanukkah, and he has a dream, he's wrestling with the angel of Esau, or his own angel, and he wakes up, and what does he have? He has a wound, he has a blemish. And we therefore do not eat the sciatic nerve. Get a nush, you have to trade with the meat before you eat it. You, we don't eat the sciatic nerve. So in America where there's less uh, expertise, we don't eat the hindquarters altogether. In Israel you still can get that, that cut of meat. So some ask on the Rambam, because the Rambam says there too, did Yaakov really wrestle with an angel? I mean, have you woken up with black and blue marks? I hope not. God forbid. And if it did... The likelihood it wasn't an angel who came and beat you up in the middle of the night. So the Rambam says, this too is not a real, it's not a reality. Yaakov had a prophecy, a premonition, as if he had struggled with an angel. So they ask the Ramban, I ask on the Rambam, how could that be? But Yaakov woke up and he had, he had a black and blue mark. He had a limp. So it's nice, he had a dream about three angels visiting you. You have a dream or a premonition about a ladder going up and down. You have a dream about wrestling with an angel. But the wrestling with an angel, how can you tell me it wasn't reality? Yaakov wakes up with a limp. So the Ritva, the Ritva, one of the medieval commentaries, the Talmud of the Rajba, was the Talmud of the Ramban. The Ritva wrote a book defending the Rambam against the challenges by the Ramban and others. I just was recently listening to this on a shir by Rav Shechter. So the Ritva writes in this book to defend the Rambam. He says, you ever hear of a psychosomatic condition? He says, for the Rambam, Yaakov never really was injured in his sciatic nerve. He had a dream in which he went through this wrestling experience. And when he then woke up and had this limp, it was a psychosomatic disorder. It wasn't literally, he could, all the MRIs in the world would not reveal sciatica. It was a psychosomatic disorder based on the premonition. That was the Rambam. Anyway, so again, we've got to start the class. So, the, um, so Yaakov has this dream, a ladder, angels going up and down. And, uh, and there's great significance to angels, by the way. One would think the angels would begin on earth and go up and then go down. It's really the reverse. Why is that? They were already on earth. I'm sorry, begin in heaven, come down the ladder, then go back up to heaven. We have it the reverse. They're starting on earth and going up to heaven and back. Why is that? Because really there were angels who were just here fulfilling their different mandates and purposes. So you have all of, these, um, all of this uh, dream. And um, what's the significance of the, of the ladder? The angels going up and down. Again, not our topic for today. But it's the idea that Yaakov, you understand Yaakov's about to go through this major transition. Yaakov was, as I described, the Shiva Bachar. He is this, this 
academic scholar living in the ivory tower of academia who is studying philosophy, Jewish philosophy, Jewish values, the Torah's blueprint for creation. He's living in this world of theories, living in this world of concept. And now he's about to go into the belly of the beast. Now he's on the road. He's running, fleeing for his life. And where is he going to live? Where is he going to find himself? Who's he going to be living with? Lavan. Talk about the belly of the beast. Yaakov's going through this transition. So is, what is the greatest spirituality? What is the greatest holiness? Is it retreating into the ivory tower of academia, of scholarship, of the base medrash, of the kolel, shielding oneself from the real world? Or how does one exist in the real world? So before, in this transition he undergoes between the base medrash, Shiva Shiva Sheva Ever, Yoshev Oalim, sitting in the tent learning, and now heading out to Lavan, he has this dream of a ladder. And what does a ladder do? The ladder is a bridge. And where is it a bridge between? It's the bridge between heaven and earth. And he sees angels going up and down. And what does that symbolize? What does that mean for Yaakov when he wakes up? He says, I didn't know, this is what we're going to study in a moment, but he says, he says, this is a makam I didn't know. This is a holy place. And this is the entrance to heaven. This is the stairway to heaven. And I didn't know. What do you mean you didn't know? What were you doing these years in Shein What were you doing all these years in the base Medrash? And you're learning by your, by your father, Yitzchak, and by your Zayda Avram, and you didn't know that God can be found in this world? And the answer is, Yaakov thought, where was God found? In Shul, in the base Medrash. But in the workplace, and at Publix, and at the gym? I didn't know that there's a ladder that bridges heaven and earth. I didn't know that one finds spirituality rooted in the mundane. I didn't realize that real, authentic, genuine spiritual growth and progress takes place not by retreating and protecting oneself and shielding oneself from the world, but by embracing the world, living in the world, and bringing godliness and spirituality to the world by creating a ladder between heaven and earth, by being able to ascend and descend, by creating that bridge and bringing heaven down to earth. That's where God is really found. And that's the significance of this dream Yaakov has and why it's necessary as an introduction and a transition before he's going to leave his childhood and now go live in the house of Lava. So that brings us to what I want to study today, what we were up to from last year. Because again, this is a text-based class. It's not, uh, we're not giving drushes and uh, esoteric thoughts, but we're analyzing the text and asking questions on it. So we're on Parakhaf Ches, chapter 28. Pasuk Gimel, verse 13. It's found in the stone Chumash on page 144. Not very far into the parsha. You see, we only did a few psukim last year. Okay, so we continue with the text. Page 144, 145, chapter 28, verse 13. Everyone have the place? So he has this dream. There's a ladder. There's angels going up and down. V'nei Hashem nitzav alav vayomar Ani Hashem alokei Avraham avicha alokei Yitzchak and here is God standing on the ladder and He says, I am the Lord your God. Elokei Avraham Avicha. I am the God of Avraham, your... He doesn't mean father, by the way, because Yaakov's not confused. He knows who his father is. He means your forefather. I am the Lord of Avraham, your forefather. Elokei Yitzchak, and the Lord of Yitzchak. Ha'aretz asher leha, the land you're chapan ashlafan, the land you're sleeping on, lecha etnena ulizarecha. You... I'm giving it to you and to your progeny, your offspring after you. So ask me questions. Go ahead. What's unusual about this pasuk? So first of all, he said it to Avraham. 
But that's not a question. He's promising Avram, he promised Yitzchak, he promised Yaakov. Each one of them, he's renewing the covenant, the promise that your offspring are going to get it. What else seems strange? What? He already gave it to Avram. But again, so he's renewing the promise, he's renewing the pledge, he's renewing the commitment to each one of them. But notice the Pasuk. Elokei Avraham Avicha Belokei Yitzchak. Whoa. God associates himself, I am the Lord of Avram, your forefather, and I'm also the Lord of this guy. You may have heard of him. He's called Yitzchak. Why isn't Yitzchak identified as Avicha? Why is Avram Avicha and not Yitzchak? After all, it would make much more sense to reverse it. Yitzchak should be Avicha, and Avram should be Avram. Because he started the dynasty. Okay, maybe. So let's see what the Orachayim HaKadosh has to say. Says the Orachayim, Tam Omro Avicha Lolotzorach. First of all, why did it say Avicha? You could ask the question altogether. Why do we have to identify Avram? Say, I'm the Lord of Avraham. Yaakov was pretty familiar with who Avram was. Didn't have to remind him. He may be confused which Avram. I know you live in a neighborhood. You go to the Shtibol. There's lots of Avrams. So when I say I'm the Lord of Avram, I mean Avicha, your father, your grandfather, your Zayda. No, there's one Avram. Yaakov knows there's only one Avram. So why does God have to say Avicha, your father? And Gamdiyek Lomar, Avicha bi Avram, Velo Ama Avram, Yitzchak Avosecha. Why didn't you combine it? I'm the Lord of Avram and Yitzchak, your fathers. Why the Lord of Avram and the Lord of Yitzchak? So Nishavin says the Orachayim Hakadosh Avchayim Ben Atar Nishavin lemaet Esav miYerushas Avraham viyasa Yaakov who are Yorish Avraham losha tagiyah haYerushal Yitzchak umimeno Yerushena Yaakov sheimkain tagiyah haYerushal Esav. God wants to make it clear that you Yaakov and you alone are the sole legitimate inheritor of Avraham. Now, if he would have said you're the inheritor of Yitzchak. Who else is an inheritor of Yitzchak? You got to split it with Esav. So says God to Yaakov, Hey, I made a promise to, I'm the Lord of your grandfather Avram, and I'm the Lord of Yitzchak. And I'm not associating Yitzchak as your father, because if I'm going to, if you will perceive that this promise is only due to you, because of your relationship to Yitzchak, then guess who else has a relationship with Yitzchak? So does Esav. But God wants to deny Esav a claim, so God positions himself, I am the Lord of Avraham, your forefather. You're getting it straight from Avraham. Esav has no claim to Avraham. Why not? Good question. So you'll ask, and what about the fact that if you have a claim from Avraham, well, guess who else has a claim then from Avraham? Your cousin Yishmael is going to show up. No. Says the Rechaim, don't worry about that. Bincha. He says, don't worry about that because Yishmael already was given a status of a servant. He was Ben Ha'ama. He was the servant of the maid, he was the son of the maidservant. So you are Elokei Avicha, your father. But Yishmael is the son of a maidservant. Velo Bincha. So a child has a taina, has a claim to their father. But the grandfather already could give to whomever he pleases. So by God saying, Okay, Avraham Avicha, he's saying to Yaakov, You are the sole inheritor of the legacy of Avraham. Not necessarily through Yitzchak, because if it was through Yitzchak, it would include Esav. 
Biblically speaking, even a rebellious child legitimately has a right to the father's inheritance to the assets. When God gave it to Avraham, it was a conditional gift. This is given to you because through you, you'll have Yitzchak, you'll have inheritors. So he says, Yishmael, Esav, even though they're illegitimate in the sense that they're not, they're not embracing Avram's values, maybe they'll have a claim. Because you can have, imagine, you know, a father dies, he has two children, one is observant, one is not. The, the, the non-observant kid's going to say, what does that have to do with their assets? I still have a legal right to their assets. So that's true in most cases. But here God gave Avraham a conditional gift on the condition of your children who will be observant. I was speaking to a, a member of our shul a few years ago who told me that in his will, he created conditions for his grandchildren. If you go on March of the Living, you get X. If you go... Grandchildren are not particularly observant. So if you get this, you get X. You marry a Jew, you get X plus Y. You, know, you do that and this, and you observe the oh, X plus Y plus Z. You, he created all kinds of incentives within the will. I'm not sure how legal, how legally binding it is. Maybe more for grandchildren than it would be for children. You could create those conditions. Um, but that's the Orchayim describes how God gave Avram these gifts on condition, and uh, and therefore he's allowed to cut out the others. And that's why the pasuk associates specifically that way. I'll also add, you'll find often in the Torah, because the Orchayim didn't answer this question. Why don't we say okay? I guess he did. But okay, Avram v'yitzchak avosecha. Torah often will describe God describes himself as I am the Lord of Avram and the Lord of Yitzchak and the Lord of Yaakov. Where do you find this? Concept very uh, bolate. Where does this stick out often? In davening Shmon Every time we say Shmon three times a day, we begin Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov. Why don't we? We're always looking for ways to get out of shul faster. So why don't we say Elokei Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov? Why are we saying Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov? Just say Elokei Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov. Moreover, aren't we implying that they each had different gods? That they each had different deities? Wouldn't it be safer, a safer bet to say, Elokei Avram Yitzhav Yaakov? Why do we describe them each as having different ones? Which one has a different connection? I think the answer is very, very powerful and important for each of us and to teach our children. Each of them forged a different relationship with the same God. There is only one God. But Avram had an Avram relationship with Hashem. And Yitzchak had a Yitzchak relationship with Hashem and Yaakov had a Yaakov relationship with Hashem. And each one of us are licensed and empowered to develop our own relationship with Hashem because we all have different levels of IQ and artistic ability and athleticism and different... different uh, we're preconditioned towards certain things and affinities for certain traits and attributes and character. We each have our own relationship with Hashem. And the precedent for the permissibility of having your own relationship with Hashem and not having to fit into a mold is Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, and Elokei Yaakov. That where there's different. So here Yaakov is introduced. God says, I'm Elokei Avram Avicha and Elokei Yitzchak and I made the promise to them and I'm making the promise to you that this land that you're lying on it's going to be all yours. And your offspring will be 
because when the boy was born, Abram, before his name changed to Abraham, was in the house. And by the meanwhile, he's already alcoholic, and yet it's only in the yeah, good. So George is asking, we find Yishmael also has the title. Right. Right. The Torah also bestows on Yishmael the title of son. So to now say, but he's a different kind of son, it's an interesting question. Okay, continuing with the next passage. And your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. And Ufaratta Yama Vakedma Vitsafona Vanegba, appropriate that we read this parsha, the Shluchim Kina Shluchim, Ufaratta. The Nivrahu Bahav you haven't yet watched or listened to Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs's delivery to the uh Kina delivery to the it's it's his message was relevant to every Jew everywhere. You don't have to be particularly a Shliach of the Rebbe, but his three takeaways of the responsibility of every Jew his response is uh, beautiful for every one of us. So I encourage you to watch that. So, I'll spare you from singing this now. So, your offspring will number the dust of the earth. You'll spread out powerfully. And which directions will you go? Westward and eastward, northward and southward. All the families of the earth shall be blessed through you and through your offspring. So there's a number of questions. First of all, you could ask the question, again, this promise was made earlier, that you'll be like the stars of the sky, and you'll be like the sand of the earth. There's only one problem, by the way. What's the problem? That we're not. (laughs) In fact, we find later in the Nevi'im, the Nevi'im prophesied often the opposite prophecy. Not only will you not number the stars of the sky and the stands on the earth, but you will always and forever remain few in number. And that prophecy has indeed come true. And every time we began to grow exponentially, more persecution, more oppression, more systematic attempt to annihilation and extermination. The prophecy has unfortunately, tragically, been proven true that we've remained small in number. So clearly you have to understand this prophecy, and we're not going to get into this now because this is text-based, not drush, but you have to understand this prophecy is not meant quantitatively but qualitatively. God did not mean that we will number the stars of the sky and we will number the sand on the beach, but He meant that we will have the qualities of the stars of the sky and we will have the qualities of the sand of the beach. And there are beautiful differences. They complement one another. The stars of the sky shine brightly, but they're independent. The stars don't complement one another. The stars function one, one by one, independently to offer their brightness. Whereas the, st- the, the sands on the beach... If you pick up one grain of sand alone, it is utterly insignificant. It's only when you combine all the sand on, that you form a beach that protects the dry land from the sea. Right? If, if I put a grain of sand on the floor right here, you wouldn't say, hey, get your towel and your pina colada, here's the beach. You're going to lie on the grain of sand. What gives it a chalot shame? What makes it a beach? All these grains of sand together. So whereas the stars illuminate, and the, the blessing to the Jewish people is that we will illuminate like the stars. And do we? Have we fulfilled that prophecy? Have you seen the list, the recent list of Nobel Prize winners? Absolutely. Are we stars to the world? We are disproportionately represented on the Nobel Prize list in technology and science and medicine in every which way. But those are individual achievements. 
The other blessing is that we also be like the dust of the earth, the sand of the beach, that we operate with a sense of unity because a grain of sand alone, independently, is meaningless. So the corollary of the blessing is that we have the unity of the sand of the beach. So we, th- this is a blessing, your offspring will be earth. It doesn't say they will number. It says they will qualitatively be like the sand of the beach. And they're going to spread. Anything startle you about this spreading? If I would have said you're going to spread in many directions, how would I have said it? I would have said you'll go north, east, south, west. I would have gone in a circle. Right? I would have followed the compass. Clockwise, counterclockwise, but I would have gone in order. This seems not... It's the order of opposites. And you'll spread out east and west, north and south. Right? Or west and east, north and south. Now, uh, there's different minhagim. question was, is this how we shake the lulav? The answer is, there's different minhagim. So, but I would have gone around. Torah doesn't say that. So I think it's interesting. What does this word ufaratsta mean? Ufaratsta. What is the word ufaratsta? So Rashi says, ufaratsta. V'chizakta. Kamo v'chein what does V'chazakta mean? Be strengthened. So not spread out. For Rashi, it means U'faratzta V'chazakta. You'll be, you'll be strengthened. You'll be strong. For Rashi, you'll be strong. U'faratzta, the root, you see it elsewhere in Shmos, is to be strong. The Ibn Ezra disagrees. The Ibn Ezra doesn't see it as being, V'faratzta means you will gain strength. But Ufaratsta for the Ibn Ezra is Kamovarabisa. It means to multiply. You will multiply, promulgate, propagate, you'll spread out in number. So Rashi sees Ufaratsta as you'll spread out in strength and in influence. For the Ibn Ezra, it's you'll spread out in in number. Quantitatively versus qualitatively. Don't we have also Tamar calling one of the sons spirits? Yes. Yes. And there it's the same. What's the meaning of Yama Vakedma Vitzafon of Anegba? The Rashbam, Rashi's grandson of Shmuel Bameir, says. We'll actually, go back to the beginning of his commentary in the Pasuk. It says, says Yaakov, you see this land that you're hopping a shlofan, you're taking a drimmel, you're having a nap? This land where you're lying down? It's all yours. I'm giving it to you. Vim Tomar Davar who says the Rashbam, and if you wake up and say, This is my grace of real estate, I was napping on a square inch of land. I took a nap on an area of land that was two feet by six feet. This is my big real estate holding God? That's your promise to me? So you wake up and say, this is it? So what's the next pasuk? Part of God's promise is when I say to you that this is your real estate, I don't just mean the two by four area where you took your nap. I mean in every direction, the four ends of the earth. In every direction that you could face. Pasuk Tezvav. We're going to go through this a little bit quickly because I want to get to one idea. He says, I'm with you, don't worry. I'm going to guard you wherever you go. I'll return you with you to the soil. I'm not going to give up on you until I've done what I've spoken to you, until I've fulfilled my promise. Don't worry. Why? Why is God making this promise? We had a similar thing a couple weeks ago. When God says to you, don't worry... What does that reveal? What does that imply implicitly that Yaakov was doing? He was worrying. He was worrying. 
So look at Rashi. Anochi imach. Obviously, this bothered Rashi also. The fishahaya yare meisav milavan. Why does God have to say to Yaakov, "Relax, buddy. I'm with you. I got your back. Don't worry." Because he was worried. What was he worried about? He was worried about Esav. He just he just started up with his big brother. You know the big hairy hunter guy with the bow and arrow, the tattoos, the piercings, the guy who rips apart animals with his bare hands. There's a lot to worry about, and he's worried he's going to the home of Lavan. So he's worried. So first God says, Anochi imach, I am with you, don't worry. Ushmartich, I'm sorry, one second. Ushmartich, and I will guard you. Bechalasher teilech, and I'll return you to this land. I will not abandon you until I fulfill. What does it mean, im? Says Rashi, Ad asher im asisi, im mishamish balashon ki. The Torah, grammatically, you need to know, sometimes uses the term im, which we translate as if. Here, the Torah sometimes uses it not as if, the Torah sometimes uses it as when. So here the Torah is employing it in the context of when. You have nothing to worry about. I will be with you. I won't abandon you until the time that I will bring you back. When I will bring you back. Not if I will bring you back. Yes, Alex. Why would he worry about Laban if he still didn't encounter him? He knew he was heading there. That's where he was being sent. At the end of the last expression, that's where he's told to go. Yeah, but he didn't know him as a mean person. No, it's his uncle, you know, when they sat around the dinner table after a few bottles of wine, he heard about his uncle, Lavan, and, you know, what Uncle Lavan did as a kid, the mischief he did, he knew this was bad, bad news. Why did they send him to Lavan if uh, he had a wife, but Lavan was so bad, the, the surrounding uh, women in the area were bad also? Why, why was there a need to send him to another place where he was not suitable for a wife? Well, it's similar to what Avram did with Eliezer. I think that's the Right. I agree. So Rashi said, in the case of Avram sending Eliezer, Rashi said because there was a greater confluence that you could influence someone who you're bringing from elsewhere to now the nucleus, the nuclear family of of Yitzchak and Rivka and, ya- and Yaakov, than it is to take someone local who will continue to be influenced by their by their uh, influences. The, by the way, the, just as an aside, if only the Jewish people would believe this statement as much as many of the Christian world and the non-Jewish world, that through the Jewish people, the inhabitants of the land will be blessed. That those who bless God's children, the Jewish people will be blessed, and those that curse will be cursed. Halavai, the Jewish people, would believe in ourselves and our ability as much as, as uh, men, members of the Christian community do. Um, the Rashbam explains what does that mean the, 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 the families of the land will be blessed through you says the Rashbam they will expand through you you will expand them you will broaden them that's what it means um, others, uh, other than Mepharshim here, explain it uh, differently, but uh, but we have to continue. Okay, pasuk tazayin. Vayikat Yaakov Mishnah. So Yaakov wakes up from his sleep. Vayomer Achin Yesh Hashem b'Makom Azeh. Vanochi Lo Yadati. He wakes up and he says, "God's here. I had no idea that God could be found here." Now, what does that mean? Rashi says. I didn't know. Had I known, I wouldn't have fallen asleep. You don't fall asleep. You're not supposed to fall asleep 
in shul, in the base medrash, in a holy place, a place, right? Some, I meet whenever I meet an anesthesiologist, I tell him he and I are in the same line of work. So, but, but uh, in theory, in theory, you're not supposed to fall asleep in a holy place. You're supposed to show it great honor and dignity. So Yaakov says, I had no idea this was a holy place. I never would have fallen asleep if I knew. If I knew. Again, he calls it uh, Bamakom. The Balaturim says, Vayikat Yaakov Mishnasov Ayomar, Sof Tevos. If you take the last letter of each word, right? Vayikat Yaakov Mishnasov Ayomar, take the last letter of each of those words, and what word does that spell? Tzibor. You see from here that a person's prayers are more readily accepted when they daven with a minion. Which is an interesting thing to learn out from a person who just davened all by themselves. But, okay, Yaakov woke up from his sleep and he said, take the last letter of each of those words and you get Sibur, you see our prayers are more readily accepted when we daven with a minion. Um, the Orachayim HaKadosh is bothered here. Vayikatz, achein vanochi, tzorach ladas kavanas omro, achein, shenirakin is galaloha ne'elam. When he wakes up and he says, achein, how do you translate achein? How do they translate achein here? Behold. How do they translate achein? Surely, Hashem is present in this place. Achein, look, lo and behold, who knew? I don't know how to properly translate Achain, but Dorachayim is bothered. Why is he saying Achain? Achain implies he's discovered something which was hidden. And why was Yaakov surprised to learn something? <laughs> Look, I didn't know. What, did Yaakov think he knew everything? Why is he so shocked to discover there was something he didn't know? So says Dorachayim, 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 the sun set prematurely to cause Yaakov to go to sleep. Yaakov, it wasn't really nighttime, but the sun set prematurely, miraculously, supernaturally, to be able to draw Yaakov, to lull Yaakov into sleep. And Yaakov couldn't figure out, how come it's three o'clock in the afternoon and it's pitch blackout? And I suddenly feel I need to take a nap. He couldn't figure out why is this, why is this, now again, the Rambam might have explained there was an eclipse. It didn't really happen. The Rambam might explain it didn't really get dark. Yaakov uh, fell asleep and had a premonition as if it got dark. But we have a tradition that it got dark. It was prematurely the day ended. It was as if it was nighttime. So Yaakov was wondering, why? That's strange. That's peculiar. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. It's pitch blackout. And I fun- suddenly feel exhausted. So So now when he wakes up and he had this dream and he says, Oh, now I understand. I needed to have this dream. I needed to have this prophecy. Now I understand what's going on. And he understood this place is a special place. Had it not gotten dark, I would have kept walking. I would have walked right by this place. I never would have taken a nap on this place and had this dream in this place and understood the significance of this place. So now I understand why it got dark early. That's how the Orachayim HaKadosh explains what's going on here. What does he say? Pasuk Yudzayin, verse 17, He looks and he says, Wow, how wondrous this place is. Look, this is a base Elohim. This is a holy place. A place for God. And this is the gate to heaven. Yes? 
So that's where Rashi, look at the long Rashi Pasuk Yitzayin, Ki Im Beis Elokim, where was he? The ladder extended to that place, he was past the place. I agree, but geographically he had to be where he needed to be to have this dream. I refer you to that Rashi in verse 17 where he discusses at length. Zeshar Shamayim. Look at Balaturim. Uh, Rav Yaakov ben Asher, the Balaturim says, Zeshar Shamayim. V'samachle, what's the very next pasuk? Vayashkem Yaakov baboker. Yaakov wakes up and he takes a, a rock and he places it under his head and he makes a monument and he anoints it with oil. So says the Balaturim, what's the connection between the two? Zeshar Shamayim. That when is it? When does he call? This is a shar shamayim, and he wakes up at dawn. You see, when is the best time to daven? Sunrise. At the moment of sunrise, the heavens are open. It's a very auspicious time to pray, and that's why the Gemara Bracha says there is no prayer like the sunrise prayer. When one is somech ge'ula l'tfila, when you say the blessing Gal Yisrael, Redeemer of Israel, and begin Shemona Esrei, you unite the theme of Shema with the theme of the Amidah at the precise moment of sunrise. That's what we call Hanetz HaChama, at the sunrise, or we refer to as davening um, Vasikin, because that's how the, they used to daven, the Vasikin used to daven. So that is the most auspicious time for prayer. Says the Baal you see a hint to that here. Because it's called Shar Shemaim, the gates of heaven are open. When? During Vayashkem Yaakov Baboker, when Yaakov wakes up at sunrise. So keep going, Pasuk Yerches. Yaakov now anoints this rock, which he's going to make a monument. Why is he anointing a rock? Because he's going to... It says, "Mashach asol lekadsha laakriv aleha." Says the Ramrin and the Rashbam, "Laakriv aleha karbanos b'shuvo." He's anointing the rock with oil because when we anoint something with oil, is how we designate it, is how we consecrate it as having a holy status. And when he returns, he's going to offer things here. So therefore, he sets it aside and anoints it now. By the way, we see, we see Yaakov has. I once gave a drush on this. Yaakov has a great affinity for rocks. Yaakov loves to play with rocks. He's always rocks under his head, and he's always setting rocks up as monuments, and with his sons, he has each of his sons designate a rock. There's something of Yaakov and rocks and monuments. There's a whole reason for it. We don't have time for it now, but you'll see it often. He called it Beis El. Beit El, modern Israel. This tshuva, I saw a tshuva by Avinay recently. How can we call, shouldn't we call it Beit Kel? Why do we call it Beit El? Interesting tshuva. He gave it its name. But this is what I want to talk to you about. All of this, the last 50 minutes, were by way of introduction, to bring us to Pasuk Chaf. Yaakov now concludes this episode and he takes an oath. And what does he say? If God will protect me on this journey that I'm embarking on, and He will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. And lastly, He will escort me in peace back to the home of my father. Then God will be for me a God. And this rock that I have placed as a monument will be for God and everything that He gives me I will tithe, I will give back to Him. Now there are many, many questions you can ask on this. Many, many questions. Well, forget, hold on. The most, the most essential question, the most core question to me is, 
I don't understand. Was Yaakov just listening to God? God just made a promise to him. God just said, hey buddy, I need you to, I need you to relax. You don't need a Zantax, you got me. Just relax. I got your back. I'm going to be with you everywhere you go. I'm not going to abandon you for a second. I'm going to take you back to this land. I'm giving you the land that I promised your forefathers. Your children are going to be like the sand of the sea. I got it all covered. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. And how does Yaakov respond? God, I'd like to take an oath to you. If you will journey with me, and if you will provide for me, and if you will, then you'll be my God. Let's see how it goes. What's going on here? What kind of oath is he making here? So there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to talk about. So is it an oath or maybe it's a promise? Some commentators understand it to be a promise. Not if, but when. When you do this and when you do that and when you do the third thing, then God indeed you will be for me, my God. But what do you mean when? And if He doesn't, then He wouldn't be for you a God? Is it a deal? It's conditional? So there's a lot of different commentaries. But I want to focus on, for our last ten minutes together, I want to focus on basing myself on a great article by Rabbi Nachman Levine that appeared in a... There's a journal, which I wish they would reinstate. The journal was called The Jewish Thought, a journal of Torah scholarship. The editor of the journal was Rabbi Moshe Sisevsky, the Rosh Hashiva of Ori Rishalayim, OJ, a very popular uh, post-high school yeshiva in Beit Meir outside Yerushalayim. And they produced this journal. The journal was a semi-annual publication of the OU in conjunction with Ori Yerushalayim with OJ. Rabbi Sisevsky was the editor. And it was a journal of Jewish thought. A lot, of, a lot of articles on Tanakh. It was great. They maybe put out six or eight journals, and then they stopped doing it. So if you can get a hold of the back copies, maybe it's on the OU's website, I don't even know. It's a great journal. And in this journal, there's an essay by a Rabbi Nachman Levine. Who is Rabbi Nachman Levine? That's a good question. Is there a little biography here? Uh, I don't know. Rabbi Nachman Levine. But anyway, he writes a fantastic article. It doesn't say. I don't even know. So he writes a great article and he points out the following. And here I'm in the next, uh, the next eight, nine minutes. I want to take you through this very, very quickly. What does Yaakov say in terms of his deal? What does he ask for from God? If you will, Nasanli lechem lechol ubeged lobosh. He wants bread and he wants clothing. Bread and clothing. So points out Rabbi Nachman Levine, if you follow now the saga of the rest of Yaakov's life and of his offspring, you will see that bread and clothing play defining roles. So Yaakov cuts this deal with God, which maybe he shouldn't have done, and he asks God for bread and clothing, and God says, bread and clothing? That's what you're worried about? If I'm going to give you bread and clothing? Alright, let's talk about bread and clothing. So where do you see that? So first of all, I mean, I'm happy to make copies of these source sheets I once produced where I underlined it all, but going through it here in his article. Where do you see that? So first you see it, um, that Yaakov's pursuit of food and clothing revolve around these issues. And his children are going to suffer from these, these challenges. Right? So um, first Yaakov tries to clothe his clothing. And he gives, what does he give Yosef? Ketonis pasim. So clothing becomes the focal point of the conflict of the sibling rivalry because he gives one of his children nicer and better clothing than the rest. He gives them this coat of many colors and it elicits the hatred of the brothers. So what do the brothers do? They take Yosef out and they plan on 
change, they were going to sell him, but pretend he's killed. And how are they going to pretend he's killed? What are they going to do? They take the clothing and they put blood on it to imply as if Yosef has been killed. Reuven says to his brothers, don't shed blood. Cast Yosef into the pit. Don't put a hand on him. We're going to return him. They accept the suggestion, but they add one addition. And the Pasuk says, it came to pass when Yosef came to his brothers, they stripped Yosef of his coat. They took him, they put him in the pit. They took Yosef's coat, they slaughtered a kid of goats, they dipped his coat in blood, and that's what they bring to the father. What does Reuven do? Reuven goes back to the pit, and when he sees that Yosef's no longer there, what does Reuven do? He rips his clothing. And what does Yaakov do when Yaakov sees Yosef's bloody clothing? He rips now his clothing. So this request for give me food and give me clothing, you see this now, it's as if God is paying Yaakov back. You cut a deal with me? You made. You were worried that I wasn't going to provide food and clothing? Let's see the role of food and clothing. So continuing. Just as Yaakov had disguised himself in Esau's goatskin clothes to mislead his father, the brothers now employ a goat to mislead their father. Right? Very interesting. And the brother jealousy that led to Yosef's stale, st- sale stemmed from Leah's use of a goat, Rachel, whose name means, what's a Rachel? Female. Is a ewe, and was herself was a shepherdess. So Yaakov, and right, so to trick Yaakov into thinking she was younger. So goats and clothing disguises therefore later um, come and confuse their leader Yehuda. Because what happens with Yehuda? Tamar. Tamar removes her clothing and covers herself with a veil, and Yehuda thinks that she's a woman of the street, and he says, "I will send the kid of goats from the flock." What is your guarantee? He wants her, her ring and her clothing. Right? So God says to Yehuda, the Medrash says, you deceived your father with a kid of goats. So Tamar will deceive you with a kid of goats as well. So even the brother's words to Yaakov come back to haunt Yehuda. Tamar sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. She said, please recognize who are these things and what does she show them? The clothing. The clothing. So... Um, again, you see this role of clothing going on and on. In Mitzrayim, Potiphar's wife took Yosef's garment to accuse him. Yosef is fleeing after he, um, after he overcomes her, the temptation of her seduction. And when he's running out, she takes his clothing and uses the clothing to... In fact, the Torah mentions the incriminating garment no less than six times. She seized him by his garment he left his garment in her hand. It was when she saw that he'd left his garment. She told her household he left his garment. She left his garment. He left her garment with me. Two years later, when Paro summons Yosef to come out of the pit, what does the Pasuk say? Paro sent for Yosef and they rushed him out of the pit. They shaved him. He changed his clothing. Paro removes his ring and he places it on Yosef's hand. And what does he do? He dresses Yosef in the king's clothing. And then what happens when Yosef falsely accuses the brothers of stealing and punishes them by enslaving Binyamin? What do they do? They tear their clothing. They tear their clothing. And finally, when it's all settled and Yosef reveals himself to his brothers and says who he is, Yosef, what does he give each of them as a gift? And he gave them all, each one of them, changes of garments. And to Binyamin, he gave five changes of garments. By the way, it's a separate question. Didn't Yosef learn from his father? 
His father showed him favoritism, and look how that resulted. It didn't end so well. Why is he not learning from that and showing favoritism? So things had come full circle. Favoritism no longer bred jealousy. A conflict over a gift of clothing was resolved with a gift of clothing. Yaakov's children, the story ends full circle, that Yaakov's children are giving, Beged Lil Bosh. Yosef is now in the position to give Yaakov's children Beged Lil Bosh. He gives them clothing to wear. It fulfills the condition of what Yaakov had asked for. That's clothing. What about bread? What about food? So Yosef dreamt that his brother's sheaves of grain all bound down to him. It was a dream about global power through what? Commodity? Through food. Through food. But first though, his brothers left him to die in a pit. What did they do? After they leave him to die in the pit, die in the pit, they sat down to eat bread. They then sold him to food merchants who then sold him to Potiphar, Mitzrayim's minister of chefs. Right? Yosef soon controlled everything in Paro's house with one exception. He controlled everything except the bread that they ate. And when he finds himself in prison and he's interacting with two officers of Paro's court, who are they? They are the wine and the baker. Through dreams about food, Yosef attains his freedom because he interprets the dreams and now he interprets Paro's dream which is about food. Right? Thin ears, fat ears, even healthy cows, unhealthy cows are ultimately about food and about the famine, the good years and the bad years. Now Yosef has a family reunion seven years later amid the famine and Yaakov advises his son about the food in Mitzrayim. I've heard there's food in Mitzrayim. Go down there and get the food. So Yosef sells them food, but surreptitiously refunds their money and demands that they return with Binyamin. And only when this food was finished did Yaakov reluctantly agree to send his beloved youngest son to Mitzrayim. Yaakov also sent with them food, including products sold by the food merchants who bought Yosef. Right? That's what he includes with them. Yosef welcomes his brothers back down to Mitzrayim, and he says to them, bring the men home and slaughter a slaughtering and prepare for the men will eat with me at noon. We can only have a conversation that's going to be over food. And now, because they're sons of Yaakov, for whom food was always complicated, the brothers were very anxious about this lunch, about the meal that they're about to have. So they, they were afraid. And they said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks at first, we are being brought to plot against us and to fall upon us and to take us as slaves. Slavery was on their minds. So what do they do? They set out bread for Yosef by himself and for the brothers by themselves. They're worried about food. So what happens next? Yosef finally reveals himself. And what does he say? Don't be sad. Don't be angry. Because here there is sustenance. There's food. You have nothing to worry about. And he sends his father. What does he send his father as a gift? Ten donkeys bearing corn and bread and food. Yosef suffered throughout his life because Yaakov um, usurped Esav's birthright. And ironically, just as Esav serves his father wore only royal clothing. Yosef serves his father only as royalty can. He serves his father royal food. And Yosef, so what happens full circle? It's incredible. Yaakov in our Parsha makes this pledge. Yaakov in our Parsha is very worried about will there be food to eat and clothing to wear. God says, you're worried about my fulfilling my pledge and therefore creates all kinds of anguish and difficulty and challenges to Yaakov specifically through the mediums of food and clothing. But in the end of the story, Yaakov indeed is blessed with what he had asked for to begin with because Yosef provides his brothers with nothing other than food and 
clothing. So this Pasuk has a lot of significance for the rest of Sefer Bracious and the unfolding of the story. Have a fantastic Shabbos. Enjoy the lunch and learn with Rabbi Friedman.